Good evening. Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. I'm Scott Walters, rector here at Calvary Church, and our guest tonight is the Reverend Kirk Whalem. He is a Grammy-winning musician who's been nominated for that award 12 times. He's played with the likes of Barbara Streisand, Al Jarreau, Luther Vandross, Quincy Jones, Whitney Houston. It's Kirk's saxophone that actually held its own with Whitney's voice in that quadruple platinum version of I Will Always Love You. He's an ordained minister with a master's degree in religion, professor at the Visible Music College just a few blocks south of here in Memphis, and if I'm not mistaken... He has a side gig as a barber from time to time. Is that right? Welcome back to Calvary, Kirk. <laughs> Provocative, uh, indeed. I, I appreciate you <laughs> starting with that word. You know, you, you want to be evocative, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I tend to, uh, you know, hang out at the border between evocative and provocative. You're right. But uh, I am a hack barber. Um, I, have, I have messed up. Plenty of people had. <laughs> I've done a few good ones, um, but but quickly that story is me volunteering at Manor House because it was part of my curriculum in seminary under Pete Gackey in Christian ethics, and um, you know I'm sitting there looking at a scenario with 95 percent of the folks who are guests uh, with needs that we're hopefully helping to meet. And then 95% of the volunteers are white. So 95% black or, or people of color. And everybody helping was white. And I was like, okay, that's not good. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't sit on the side and yell, why don't we all help when, you know, here we are with an opportunity. So I said, well, what can I do? And I used <laughs> to cut my kid, my son's hair. You know, we used to cut hair in college. And uh, I was like, well, I'll, I'll cut hair. I mean, if you leave here looking somehow better than when you came, but it's like question of degrees. <laughs> what was that old line about the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut's about three weeks? Three weeks. That's it, girl. I can actually imagine a seminary ethics class on the ethics of bad haircuts. I think you could go there. Yeah, well, the funny thing that I found, by the way, is that while we're on haircuts, is that, you know, you, you go into that situation before you understand what it means to volunteer in, the, in that scenario, and you're like, well, people should just be happy to get anything, you know. But what you find is that, no, no, no. Here's an individual who's saying, do not mess my hair up. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, I might be in need, I might be homeless, I might be whatever, but I do not want you to mess my hair up. You know? Well, that's interesting. Forget all what I wrote here. Um, <laughs> this is really interesting, and I think it's probably related to work as a musician and an artist, which is the place of beauty in our lives. Right. And it's not necessarily for some humans who've lifted up against, above certain Maslow's hierarchies. Just at one point we need beauty. It's everybody. We, we have a, a clothing ministry on Sunday mornings. And what the folks realized is how much more it means if someone can pick out what it is and have some kind of dignity. And it seems to me a, mu- a musician and an artist, uh, this is something y'all know deeply and could teach us that the, the beauty isn't something just for the elite. That's correct. And, um, and, and as well, when it just so happens that when it comes to music, uh, people are very particular. You know what I mean? It doesn't uh, have anything to do with class or caste or any of that. It's like basically we could be sitting there talking and the average person will listen to us talk for long enough to say, okay, well, I kind of agree, agree with that. I don't agree with that. But I'll keep listening. But the minute I go... The person who doesn't like that kind of music is immediately going to turn station. <laughs> you know, immediately. They have absolutely no patience for that. You know, so I think it's a humbling, a good humbling realization that we are here as, as music, musicians, even as artists, as servants of people. So there's going to be a group of people, hopefully you have a large group of people, sometimes not, who do enjoy what you do. But there's going to be a lot of people who just are not into it. It doesn't work for them. It doesn't work for them. 
But it's not like there's a neat and tidy border between one genre, and it's not that tidy, is it? You, you, talk, you talked this morning, this afternoon, about uh, non-dualistic thinking. And when you're talking about whether I think this song is lovely or horrible, uh, I feel like it's, a, it's an entry into this conversation. How do you describe what's a good song and a bad song? It's hard to figure out how to do that. I mean, is this, are these chops we can learn if we're not musicians that we need to learn? That, what does it tell us about ourselves? Right, no, no, you, you're, you're right on, uh, Scott, like that um, w- what it becomes more or less is uh, an opportunity for me to convince you person who may not, you know, identify as, well, I'm, I'm a jazz fan. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that person, you know, might say, yeah, my reference point for that particular music is not something I care for. So first I got to break that down and say, what is jazz, you know, and say that there's so many different things. And then I have to say, well, if I could just get that person to be blindfolded, and have no description of what it is, and, and, and then, you know, just try to hook them by virtue of the art, the just the unadulterated art itself. with just the melody. Mm-hmm. And somebody may go, hey, wait a minute, I, I think I know that song, yeah. you know, and they may be driving along and maybe I can hook them with that, but then I, I'm going to veer off into the spontaneous, more personal, spontaneous composition, improvisation part of it, where I'm just sort of telling a story based on that melody. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. where the jazz part comes in. And, and, and as Dave Brubeck said, who was one of my favorite human beings, that jazz um, is, is the music of liberation. It's the music of freedom. Because jazz was that music. First of all, it came along where black musicians or musicians of color were the ones, you know, running the show in the sense that, oh, my God, I want to learn how to play that music. Where can I learn? You got to learn from black people. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the black musician w- was all of a sudden in a, in, a, in a sphere where your voice, what you have to say, what's in your heart, what's on your mind, is valid, period. Like, just say it. And, and we just need to hear what you have to say. Again, not play, but what you have to say with your instrument. And then the white guy comes along, then the Asian guy, and then the Native American and whomever. So, you know, it, it, that is a humanity, you know, sort of uh, scenario where it's like we're all bringing something unique and we're better together. And jazz is undervalued for providing that platform. It invites it. Yes. Celebrate. It's fascinating. And you st- I think you use the word convince. Before you started, when you said, maybe I can convince you of something when I step, and I, I latched on to that because usually when we think about these disparate peoples who have different experiences and different worldviews, convincing means I need to convince you that I'm right. Mm. But you just did something different. You took a melody that was familiar and then brought a little of yourself to it, and now you're describing a process where other people can bring themselves to it, which feels kind of radical, radically needed right now yes. as we're trying to figure out how in the world do we hear what anybody else has to say. Has to say. Is that process something we can learn from if I can't play quite like that? <laughs> right, so, so you're right. I mean, it's like on the one hand, this dualism of, you know, the political sphere where it's us against them and it's this right against left, conservative against, you know, liberal it's bifurcated, it's like, it, it, it can't be 
a little bit of both. It kind of has to be one or the other. And you need to be convinced by me that my way is right. Right? And then you back off of it, you zoom out, and here comes music, which is so much more effective and grabbing a space where we, we can, if not agree, we can relax and sort of all be swept up into it. And then... Now, it changes, it changes the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You can have a political discussion then, but it's not dualistic. It's more like, here are shades of this and shades of that. Yeah. Which is not to say that I'm, I'm, I don't have my side. I, I am not completely delivered <laughs> from dualism. Well, know? no, but that doesn't, what you're describing doesn't mean anything goes. It's actually very difficult for people to do what you do with other people. It takes an mm-hmm. attention in the moment, and you can't just throw any note in there and it works, right? So there's, it's just a different way of talking about constraints that actually hold a community together, it seems like. I have to, you're talking about a process, I have to attend to exactly who you are in this moment, and we're not very good at that right now, because I'd rather, I'd rather deal with the category. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, you learned your father was a minister. Yes. So I'm assuming you, you started singing in church. I started playing in church. Playing in church? Yeah, singing and playing. Well, tell us about that and and maybe even how when you started to go beyond the walls of the church, were Mm -hmm. those categories ever problematic that you were taking music into places where it wasn't God's music? Right, right. I have to, first of all, thank my mom who was tuned in today. Somebody told my mom, are you here? Somebody called my mom and (laughs) said I was going to preach here today. (laughs) I just want to thank you. Because, uh, Mom, thank you for... But you need to know if your mom's listening. That's right, So man. you need to have you know, a warning on that. Seriously, I wish I'd known. But, uh, no, I actually shouted her out. But my mom and stepdad uh, live in Kansas City, and, I, and I'm just, you know, so grateful for them. Um, you're right, though. My dad, you know, as not only dad, but pastor, you know, in fact, uh, his nickname was Reverend Daddy. <laughs> Not just for you. Not just for me, man. (laughs) That was part of sort of, you know, maybe why I'm dysfunctional to this day is because, you know, I shared my dad with all these other people. Yeah. And and so we all called him Reverend Daddy, and he would just as soon get in their face as he was mine. Like if if I did something or they did something, you know, out of line, he was in your face, you know. And so I was glad to share that part. But, um, but. (laughs) But, but yes, you know, my father in particular, because he was the sort of the lawgiver, <laughs> was of the opinion, you know, my dad was way ahead of his time. He was very progressive in the sense that Olivet Baptist Church was going to have a smoking ban and people were going to wear the latest fashions and kind of chill. And it wasn't, you know, very structured in a conventional way. And when his 14-year-old I guess maybe 15, you know, came and said, Dad, I, I got a gig at this club, you know, playing behind this blues artist or whatever, some t- terrible gig. But to me, it was a gig. And my dad was like, yeah. You know, I mean, imagine you walk up to your pastor yeah. father. Say, hey, Dad, <laughs> yeah, I got a gig. Can I go play? And so he, he was, you know, again, Mom was like, you know, sitting there, this is on you, man. You know, <laughs> and so my dad was like, "Yeah, go right ahead." He said, "Here's the thing. You better remember who you are. So it's not about where you are, right? It's about who you are when you are where you are." So, uh, and my wife took that and ran with it. So she's tell her our kids, "Remember who you are, and remember whose you are, and wherever that setting is." And I've really taken that to heart, and I actually got in trouble with that eventually because I really kind of was in jazz clubs kind of preaching, which is not cool um, <laughs> in one sense because people are like, hey, I paid my money for you to play the horn. <laughs> Tell me about Jesus. <laughs> you know, but I thank my dad for that. Yeah, that, I think that's rare. I think whoever we are, especially for raising a child, yeah. we want to we wanna fence around them. Um, Protect them and, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, especially when it comes to the church culture. Mm-hmm. You know, someone said that um, culture eats religion for lunch, <laughs> you know, and that's true because it's not so much about what is, what are the tenets of the faith, boil it down, what does that say about so-and-so and so-and-so, because sometimes it's hard to know that, 
But what does the religious culture of your area say about that or your denomination or your neighborhood or whatever? That is the thing that ends up, you know, wrecking some people's lives and then other people uh, liberates them to fly like a bird. So, yeah, my dad was kind of the, you know, ground zero of a culture that allowed people to, to be who they are, still serve God with this individuality, you know. And there's some trust in there that you're actually being equipped to go in a place that's different from this one. And, and of course, you know, within that is, you know, giving you just enough rope. <laughs> yeah. Hang yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like let you fall, let you trip and figure it out. Whereas, you know, if we keep you so tight, you know, I have some friends who are in a particular denomination, some of my musician friends who uh, that thing is so tight. You know, about you can't wear jewelry, you can't uh, do this, you can't do that. And they are some of the most sexually dysfunctional people I know. Mm. 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 Yeah, yeah, the rule, yeah, well, well. We can, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but we know this about ourselves, right? We know, yeah. I mean, it's the first story. It's the first story. Here's the, here's the garden. Oh, just don't, not that tree. <laughs> Oh, it's oh, the first. No, which one was it it's again? The first story. <laughs> oh, that, that one. Looks, it looks interesting. Uh, but I, I love this idea of, of really when it comes to the to faith. I mean, a lot of people look in on what faith is, and they see it maybe from the outside as a collection of rules and borders and behaviors that define somebody as coming as being okay, good, holy, clean, all of those things, rather than a collection. Exercising muscles, exercising uh, ways of being in the world that could actually go and engage the world in better place. That, that requires discipline. Yes. I, keep, I keep putting it back on thinking through your experience as a musician. It takes hours and hours and hours of practice to let go and improvise, right? Um, that seems like a rich metaphor, not just a metaphor, it's, it's real practice in, yeah. in, in what it means to be a Christian in the world. Um, I, I think y'all have a lot to offer us, and it it, let's talk about COVID a little bit related yes, to this, because yes. this has been a hard year, mm. full stop, hard mm -hmm. year. But for musicians and creative people, it's been an especially hard year. And in hard times, it feels like beauty and art are the first things people assume need to go. Yeah. So I'd love to talk about the last year and how it relates to all this for you, just spiritually, as a person, as a yeah. performer. Well, thank you for bringing it up, Scott. And, and uh, since we are neighbors, people may not know, uh, there's about 10 houses between yours and mine. Um, and uh, sorry for the many times my dog has, has pooped in your yard. But, um, I'm but, honored. I'm honored. <laughs> I'm thinking he, he would say, yeah, you should be honored. But, um, Biscuit can come You in. know, the thing is that um, uh, the hard kind of... Uh, pragmatic side uh, of the dream that I wanted to live. I'm living this dream of traveling the world playing music, you know, playing my instrument. Like this thing opened the door for me to, to do what I have always wanted to do and that's travel the world and to share uh, my art and of course, you know, my heart. Like, you know, I've always from the beginning uh, wanted God to be front and center in, in what I did. And I didn't know, necessarily know what to call that, like, are you a minister or are you, a, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. But um, so I kind of, you know, morph into whatever that is. But to be a traveling touring musician in uh, a pandemic uh, is extraordinarily uh, difficult. And again, it's all contextualized in the, in the suffering and grief that so many people, maybe even here, um, have experienced in this pandemic. You know, some, some have actually lost loved ones um, or maybe been sick themselves. Just financially, you know, about 70% of my income just went out the right. door. Right. So, um, you know, God has provided. And my wife, my girlfriend, who I met when I was 15, I met Jesus and Ruby at the same camp. <laughs> I fell in love. <laughs> not necessarily in that order? It, it, for real, man. I'm not quite sure which, but it was that week of camp. It's Baptist youth camp. But um, I met them both, you know, and I fell in love with both of them. And 
you know, she has the saying um, that God keeps us eating out of his hand. It, the lucky ones, you know, it's like wealth is awesome. And black people were, you know, systematically uh, sort of, you know, uh, kept from, you know, real wealth because of certain things that were put in place, even in our government, but certainly in our culture. Mm -hmm. But what that did in some other ways is made for a different kind of fabric of, uh, of, of dignity and sort of, um, I'm not finding the word, but, you know, put it like this, music that now and has now 400 years reached the world on behalf of America yeah. has been black music or black music that has morphed into other things, you know, i.e. rock and roll, all of that goes back, right. back down to the Mississippi Delta right. <laughs> and Memphis, and you know, so like black music, black culture has, has become that thing that spiced everything. It wasn't everything, lest we be arrogant, but the root system of all of that art is black. But then to say that, um, you know, it, 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 also, it also changes your priorities and, and the way you do life to where you start to see the... And this is not just black people, it's just, you know, poor people in general. Yeah. You start to see the stuff that really matters and value the things that really matter. Like, if you want to see somebody really celebrate, you go to a quinceanera, <laughs> okay? You yeah. know, where daddy just got through, you know, roofing somebody's house with a team of guys, immigrants, you know, of illegals, which <laughs> makes the back of, hair on the back of my neck stand up, I hate hate, hate that word because no human being is illegal. But so you go to that quinceanera and you're going to see some celebration. Yeah. Right. And so in that sense, um, what we find lived out in, in the pandemic and in, 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 in musical terms, just to use, you know, that uh, as, as a template is that, man, I really am so much appreciating the things that I was able to do uh, before the pandemic. And also, man, I can sit in my house and do that in such a way uh, that is the, the sacrament, as it were, of the bigger thing. Like I can really sit there. I mean, I'm making lots of video content. I'm doing lots of actual projects in my studio, but I can also just sit there and play and and it, there's, there's, there's an aspect of that that is so rich and so rewarding. And finally, the financial part, Ruby says that, you know, there came a time when she said, you know what, I mean, it was 30 years ago. We've been married 40 years. She said, I'm done worrying about money. Hmm. I'm not going to ever worry about money again. Hmm. And I'm like, do you know something I don't know? <laughs> <laughs> but what she was saying was that God will provide. And so what we found now in a very special way during the pandemic is that, you know, God keeps you eating out of his hand. It, you have to be close for a bird. You have to have proximity mm. for that bird to eat out of your hand. You can't feed them from over there. Mm. And that's the sparrow uh, metaphor, like, you know, God takes away the thing that you think, well, I'll be fine because I've got records out and I got a Grammy and I got blah, blah, blah. And I'll be, yeah, I'll be fine. All of a sudden, holy moly. Yeah. And, and yet here we are. We have no outstanding <laughs> bills, you know, like, I, I, I mean, maybe, you, you know, sometimes people think if you got a Grammy, you got, you know, record contract, you're rich. You know, well, I'm not. <laughs> and, 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 and to prove it is like just month. By month, God just sees to it that we're set, you know. Yeah. And part of it, it sounds like Ruby's wisdom is, I've got to adjust my definition of enough because I'll never get there if I can't, if I can't receive Man, it. Yeah, you just described the COVID blessing. I mean, it, I think that's a really articulate description of deciding, making a conscious decision of what is enough. Where is the, where is the space where you, you know, hey, you're breathing, you can move, 
Um, nobody's knocking on the door to take the keys from you. Mm. Uh, just start with that list of things that maybe you had a blind so you couldn't see those when you were out there going after it. Oh, I want a bigger and a better and a bigger and a better. Mm-hmm. It's like, is, does that really matter, though? Yeah, yeah. Um, so many places to go with that. Um, <laughs> what, look, look, why don't I play something while it, you yeah. decide where we yeah. go? Uh, maybe as an example of how, what is... What is Something that I'm interested in in this oh, yeah. conversation, too, is, and maybe you can play something about that, is when you started to talk about the suffering of African-American people and different people and beauty coming out of difficult situations. I mean, one of my, one of the best things I read during COVID was uh, Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, right? And he just says, we don't understand the gospel until we realize it was written to and for those people. And if you're not that, you're overhearing it. And, and, and the music that came out of these, we would never say, let's create this, let's create Jim Crow so our music will be better. Wrong. Mm. And yet in spite of this broken, sinful world, this music with the knowledge of suffering and brokenness, it seems to be part of the music that's so important. Uh. And so, I mean, where did that register for you that the experience of suffering has to come, has to be a component of, even joyful music has to have a knowledge of suffering somewhere in it for it to mean something to us. As Richard Rohr would say, uh, order, disorder, reorder, or the concept of necessary suffering, you know, those things that, again, when I preached earlier, talking about those concepts that come along, color, color in between the lines of, uh, uh, you know, what is it to walk with God? What is it to walk amongst your your fellow human beings in a way mm. that reflects the, the goodness and, and, and purity and beauty of God in the context of suffering, you know. Um, well, let's say, for instance, all indigenous music that we know about, you can never say all, but most of it centers around this, this pentatonic scale, penta five-note scale. <laughs> That's the minor version of it. Mm-hmm. The major version is. Right? So you would find that into the, uh, I guess, the, the, um, the space where, where, where we kind of define this music as African-American music, you find that indigenous scale in just about everything. And, and <clears throat> the further you go down the root system, you know, you see where blues came from, you see where the spirituals came from, and you see where just about everything came from. But it's hard to draw the line, right? Mm-hmm. What's sacred music, what's secular music? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what's, what's mm-hmm. the difference? Thank you. 
Yes, sir. Beautiful. Tell us about this. Um, you, travel, you said you travel a lot. You told me on the porch the other day that your happy place is Japan. Yes. Um, how has being in other places, in other cultures, informed what you're talking about, this deep musical tradition that you were brought into? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, first of all, there's the sort of exotification, I think I'm saying that right, um, of, you know, the reason my music and our music in general, black people and jazz music, is accepted so uh, voraciously and, and other cultures is because of the fact that it didn't come from there. Mm -hmm. And it's excellent, but that is a big part of it that, you know, other people see what you do in a different light. Mm -hmm. And I was in Indonesia, uh, in Jakarta, and I, I was asked to sit in with an artist there. Eventually, I make this project called Humanite, which is a documentary and record. Feel free to go to my Facebook page and see it. But I'm, Humanite. Uh, so I was asked to do a, uh, to sit in with this artist, this this um, Muslim kid who's uh, 23 at the time, uh, you know, and I knew he was a pop star of sorts, but I didn't know just sort of the degree of that. And they were like, yeah, well, we would love for you to sit in with him. And I'm thinking, how's that going to work? Like, how's that going to look? Like, I'm a kind of older jazz musician from the States, and here we have this vibrant southeastern Southeast Asian pop, you know, uh, a scene, and yeah, that, you know, I mean, for me, it, it was a no-brainer because, again, it's just music, so we're just going to get together and do what we do, <laughs> but I did have that thought, sure enough, again, because culture eats religion and just about <laughs> everything else for lunch, so I, I walk out, on, I couldn't see the audience from where my perspective, I entered through the back, and I met this guy, his name is Afghan, and he's like, man, I love, you know, you played with Whitney Houston. Oh, my goodness. Like, I, you I, I, just like trembling. He's like, she is my <laughs> ultimate hero. So, uh, man, I'd love for you to play on this song. So the, the band kicks off. He does his thing. And then he said, welcome my special guest, Kirk Whalem. I walk out. I'll get back to Japan, I promise. No, I like this. I, <laughs> I walk out. There are 4,000 screaming girls. <laughs> I'm going to say the average age is 15, <laughs> right? Because this kid, is, he is a beautiful human creature, right? And, of course, you know, uh, he's the heartthrob, and he sings great, and the whole thing is a sweet kid. But I walked out to go like, okay, so, yeah, the, the sort of exotification of what I am, what I do, where I come from, who I am, all that has worked to my favor in this moment. Hmm. There are other moments when I'm here and some dude passes by with his loud pickup truck and calls me a racist name. Right. You know. Different here. response to difference. Exactly. You know. <clears throat> so, so in other words, both are happening. It's just now I'm in this place, this panacea, where it's like all of a sudden I'm a, I'm a big guy. Interesting. And, and then just to say that Japan is that place that has maybe been uh, more so than any country in the East, for sure, uh, where jazz music has just been, it's been the cat's meow for a for hundred years. And, you know, back during the wars, you know, it was jazz music, again, black American classical music, we call it, uh, that those people, you know, just can't get enough of. So I go there at least you know, once a year, some years I don't go, but pretty much every year, sometimes twice a year. And I love it so much. Ruby and I want to, you know, have a place there at some point. Um, maybe when things get going again, I could start making money again and buy a place. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> I want you all to know that in the next five or ten minutes, we'll be happy to take questions from you all. So be thinking of what I'm not asking, Kirk. Uh, the jacket is uh, Nigerian. <laughs> and, uh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> and it'll be auctioned after the, after the show. That's loud. Uh, that thing is loud. You mentioned, it seems related to this in different cultures, and you mentioned in your sermon today a little bit about maybe even learning appreciation for other religions and what they might have to offer in aspects of God. Is that an evolution in your understanding and your dialogue with other cultures and people that's expanded or changed over the years? It, it really has, Scott. And, and I'll say that it, 
Memphis Theological <clears throat> Seminary has been and continues to be such a watershed uh, experience for me. Uh, you know, going to, to MTS, um, just having my head ripped off, you know, theologically, uh, and then sort of carefully put back on has just <laughs> been such a joy. And a big part of that is what you speak of, you know, that um, you go in saying, well, yeah, let's talk about Jesus. You know, I'm here to have a Bible study every day of the week. You know, I have a Bible study in this class and a Bible study in that class, and it's going to be awesome. <laughs> and they're like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's not what seminary. We have any other seminary grads, uh, seminary folks? Uh, right, so it's most definitely at most, at the good ones, uh, you are there to have your preconceived notions <laughs> and your faith challenged. And to open you up to contextualize the things that you say you truly believe. Mm -hmm. And I was not looking forward to that. I wasn't <laughs> ready for that. But boy, I tell you, it has been such a blessing because it, it, as it turns out, the gospel of Jesus Christ stands up. Yeah. And, you know, but you don't know that if you don't ever get out. And then to say that the traveling part of it just has, has been you know, has always been, but now especially with these new eyes that I have after seminary, uh, has been so amazing because I was a little skittish before, you know, I travel and I was like, hey, why don't you come, we'd love for you to come to our Buddhist um, prayers uh, here in Kyoto. Uh, and I, I would, in 85, when I first went, I'm, uh, nah, nah, I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> Um, but man, oh man, I have just, whether, you know, Shinto or Buddhist, Muslim, you know, I have just loved learning from and being humbled by, first of all, people's religious practice. Mm, mm. Okay. You know, just whether it's the practice of, of, of meditation or the practice of, you know, I wake up every morning and I go from my bed pretty much straight to on my face. And I envision in that moment the Muslim friends that I have, and that that's what they do five times a day. And I'm like, the average Christian, yeah, um, I don't, there's a lot of Christians who have never been on their face yeah. to prostrate oneself before the, the King of Kings. It's like now we're in this setting where God is my buddy, and I, I hear these prayers, thanks, Lord for just being so cool and doing what you do, hanging, <laughs> thanks. I'm like, okay, I get that, but, and I'm glad I have this rapport with Jesus, but man, I'm also, I'm on my face, and that is something for sure, Scott, that came from travel. I mean, that feels like it comes all the way back to the beginning of this conversation where you picked up your flute. Yes. Uh, and let me convince you of this. We want to have these discussions about the nature of God in the head and we have the categories of who's a believer and who's an, who's an apostate and who's whatnot but when you're talking about heading to practice you know all the religions say whatever you think about God it's not right yeah <laughs> you can't you just you just wing him on the earlobe right you know <laughs> so there's something true to what you're saying in in this turn toward practice that feels like it's a little genre busting mm. that could be a helpful helpful way to look at, at, at dialogue with people of other faiths. Yeah. It could be vigorous and Right. Well, I challenging. think a big part of it is humility, you know, that um, it's easy when you're so sure about something to then also become arrogant about that thing. And you begin to diminish and sort of dismiss other people's faith traditions other people's existential uh, grasp on life and the ways that they understand the creator, the ways that they understand, you know, who we call God. I mean, again, it's, it's just been a revolution for me <clears throat> to get to a place where I don't have to be right. You know, uh, it's this kind of, again, back to the dualism where, well, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, uh, then, then I, I, you know, I'm in trouble. It's like, well, no, don't, don't worry. You know, like, I'm not throwing the baby out. I'm just, 
just wonder about the bathwater. We can just discuss <laughs> what the bathwater looks like. And as well, we can say that this individual, God is the judge. And God will determine all of that. He'll sort all those things out. And at the end of the day, the grace, the hesed, the grace, mercy, loving kindness, we say miséricorde in French, of God is so far beyond our comprehension and is way out in front of any rational discussion, any dualistic, bifurcated conversation I'm going to have. Like the grace of God is so huge that you just need to be open to see what God's going to do next. And don't worry, if you don't figure out today, just get tomorrow morning, start back out on your face and watch God do a new thing tomorrow too. If we could learn to go to practice before we divide it up in our camps, how much could be healed? Absolutely. You talked about that in the sermon as well today. I'm going to play this melody. I know somebody's going to probably have a question. Yeah. The idea that the Buddhists, for instance, talk about resonance, like the, you know, meditating and having certain frequencies that, um, you know, resonate with your body, resonate, connect you with the earth and all of creation and all of that. And we all kind of poo-poo that away with conventional Christianity until you realize, wait a minute, I did feel different once that sound began. All of a sudden, the sound changed something in the atmosphere and it changed something in me. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, yeah, the Buddhists were trying to tell you that. Yeah. You, know, you thought you had to give up Christ to, to, to say, yeah, man, that's right, you're right about that. saying, a friend of mine wrote a book called Jump and the Net Will Appear. <laughs> and to me, that sums up what it is to, to be a musician in general. Like, you know, you talk about making your living because of something you're holding in your hand that has keys on it. That it is a preposterous idea. But yet, I've done it. And then you come to the point of saying that, you know, I don't know in a given moment if it's not playing a particular piece like I did with Chris in the day or something we worked on. If I just want to go, no, let's just do something completely new right now. Like what I just played, I don't know what that is. Maybe we'll listen back and I might take that and make a song out of it. But it is new for this moment. Mm-hmm. And it's about me taking a breath. And I like the fact that I'm a wind musician, a wind artist, because what you do is connected to God in such a profound and personal way that you can't do it without that breath. As we see with COVID, like people with respiratory problems, you know, have, have you know, really struggled. But you take a breath and you jump out there. It's like you get your glider wings on and you jump off that cliff and you just hope that thing works, you know. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't, musically speaking, but it's all good. It's such a beautiful life. I love it. It's the Ruah. Yeah. Breath, spirit. Rua. I'm hoping we have some questions out here. I think Heidi's got a. She's 
She's got a microphone here, so raise your hand if you've got questions for, for Kirk. Uh, what is my dog's name? His name is Biscuit. <laughs> and what kind of yard, what kind of lawn does he prefer? <laughs> the one with all the dandelions, I know. <laughs> it is like so funny, right? Like dogs, they're so persnickety. I'm like, you are going to pee on that. Why, why is it so... Anyway. <laughs> Pardon me, I didn't mean to... It's exactly the lead-in she was looking for. Um, I grew up going to Olivet oh um, and fondly remember um, the day that my mom, who's here with me, um, took me to Olivet and she said, do you want to join? Do you like it here? Like, do you want to join? And... I said, yeah, they play the saxophone here. <laughs> I definitely want to go to church here. Um, and I came to found, find out that um, the church itself seemed to really be supportive of expressions of artistry in the field of faith. Um, and I came to find that um, there was so much talent there on Sundays, um, and, and everybody was just given the freedom to express their gift. And I just wondered how that shaped your journey and how communities of faith can shape the journey of up-and-coming musicians. Wow, what a lovely question. And uh, nice to meet you. I mean, that's very cool. Uh, you're taking me back, all these memories. Um, and by the way, that building, the original, well, not, well, the original was on Calhoun, but the building that I, all my childhood memories are pretty much was on Southern of Olivet Baptist Church, and it was, it was right next to the Bunton Cafe, which, you know, you could smell those biscuits, you know, <laughs> uh, rolls, I mean. Um, so I think you're right, especially, <clears throat> and it comes from the top, where there's a person who's open to what God decides to do as opposed to what that person's preconceived idea of, you know, how should the worship music sound, what is the overall culture here, when it comes to artists and creatives and, you know, how, is this something that's important? Is this something that is worth us investing in? And I'm telling you, man, I cannot even sum it up just how super important it has been as, as, as fertilizer. You know, like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the outliers, right? So I'm an outlier. In that sense, yes, I put in my 10,000 hours plus, but I've also, I was planted in a place where this overall spirit of an environment of empowerment was, was just so fluid and so beautiful. And it continued, you know, like I told my nephew, you know, my son plays with Kelly Clarkson. So if you ever see the Kelly Clarkson show, that handsome bass player is my, <laughs> our son. He looks a lot more like Ruby than me. But, um, and then I have nephews who played with this one, played with that one. So this other nephew, you know, he, he came to me at age 12, and he's like, well, um, I got my bass over here, and I've got my, my trombone, and uh, I'm just, I like them both. You know, what do you think I should do? I said, man, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but, man, stick with that bass because it's hard out here on a trombone. <laughs> You know, and there, there are literally trombone jokes. There's so many trombone jokes. I played it in the seventh grade. <laughs> did. That's why you're such I a good pastor. I peaked early. Yeah, no. <laughs> you peaked early. That's why you're such a good pastor. <laughs> I'm sure it is. But so I said, yeah, stick with the bass, man. And so fast forward, and Cameron plays trombone with Bruno Mars. And so, <laughs> you know, he has been around the world five times before I, you know, even get on the plane. So, you know, it, 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 is, it is absolutely a beautiful testament to the environment, the soil, the fertilizer that says, you're here, we're going to talk about Jesus, we're going to worship God, we're going to, you know, bring you closer, hopefully, in your walk with God and, and start, start, you know, sort of, you know, rounding out some of the rough edges. Meanwhile, who are you and what is it that you are here to, to share with the world? Let's talk about that. And if it's a creative endeavor, then you got to come with it. You can't be messing around, you know. That's powerful because what she's identified is we might think the way to welcome more people is to lower the bar. 
But what you've described, and I'm hearing you all describe, is musicianship at the highest level that has an invitation embedded into it that, come on, we're going to challenge you. I mean, that, that seems like a powerful model for faith. It, it and is life. a beautiful and, model for faith. And then just, you know, taking it back into the music area to say that, you know, there, there is absolutely, in, in the faith realm, there's a mediocrity that is endemic, is unfortunately rampant in faith community because, again, part of it is understandable because you've got a volunteer army in most churches. Most churches don't have enough money to pay the kind of, like a Christian, like really, really good <laughs> artists and musicians. Um, but at the same time, man, I'm, I really love the fact that my dad understood, and I'll I, I mention another uh, denomination that is really good at this, and that's Seventh-day Adventist. I have a lot of issues with their doctrines and stuff, but one of the things that they do well is that if you say, well, I'm going to play the piano, they're like, okay, and what college are you going to get your master's from? Hmm. You know what I mean? Not like I some, some of the church I grew up in, like, well, the Lord, the Lord anointed me to play the piano. Of course, <laughs> I'm going to go up there and sit down. <laughs> you know, and thus, you know, the mediocrity, and then when you try to plug in you know, I mean, I look at the sound crew, like some of these guys, I run into these people out at the Orpheum or in other venues because they're professionals, you know. Like, again, you, when you plug into the world at large, you don't want to represent Christ in a, in, 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 with mediocrity. So, yeah, I'm grateful for that. Anybody else there? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that, my, my story is, you already know it. So, uh, it's, no, <laughs> I think it's, it's fascinating. And um, I love that you called out our sound folks. You know, one of the things that we learned in this last year, you know, we were not, we're not a megachurch. We're old school, right? Pipe organ. That means we weren't set up to do this thing. But we had people in the congregation with gifts. Mm. Noah, who, who's doing our uh, filming, and yeah. Bernie on the sound. And I'm, I was fascinated to learn how important sound was to our, our live streams. And all of these things are how can we, is there a means with, through which we can connect people back to the gathered body that they're separate from. It yeah. reminds me a little bit of you and you're describing how you had to imagine yourself back into the concert hall when you were in your studio at home by yourself. It sounded like this. What are the resources we have to connect with? Yes, with Lord. So and the fact that you, that, that you empower people, you, you help them get the training. And I'm going to say this, you know, this is an area that we can be proactive with minorities. Right, because we need to take certain things off the table, like the sort of like, oh, well, you know, we can't, we, that's not fair. We can't give them more than we gave this one. No, 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 no. <laughs> we need to give these folk a little bit more than they, because, because these are the folk who were, they started down here with no resources and no connections. So, yeah, we need to empower. And this is something I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir because Calvary is way on that. <laughs> you know, y'all are on it. But, but to empower youth in particular, this is, a lot of churches miss this, to go forth. You are empowering them to go get their education and go out there. If they end up coming back and helping you out, that's nice. But don't, you know, people, they say, oh, we got a good one. Okay, so we got to hold on to them. Can't let them get out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, let them go, man. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to do. It seems like it's back to the whole control that impulse to control that musicians and artists can, can train the rest of us in letting go. And, uh, I think Sting said, if you love someone, set them free. Yeah, I have that record. <laughs> record. <laughs> we probably have room for one more if there's, if there's a burning question someone has out here. My wife her. had a question like, where am I taking her to dinner tonight? <laughs> With suggestions. Got any we can do suggestions. <laughs> I want to thank you for my waffle today. Um, <laughs> it was very important to me. Um, I don't really have a question. I just have a comment. Um, first of all, I saw you at the Dave Matthews show here in Memphis in uh, May two years ago. It was fabulous when you came on stage. But um, you were speaking about just a minute ago how being very confident in what you believe can bring about an arrogance sometimes. And I was reading how you pray with your 
uh, band members sometimes before you go on stage. Hey, hey, one second, hold on. Is it not since, on? Since, since, since you're uh, over there pretty much by yourself and significant other, would you take your mask off because I'm having trouble understanding <laughs> you. Sorry. Can you hear me better now? I can hear you okay, so much great. better. Thanks, so. <laughs> Um, I heard you heard me. At, you saw me a date with Dave Matthews. I did. I did. It was fabulous. You you played your heart out. I remember it was a, it was a big night. But um, you had mentioned earlier in your con and, uh, when you were speaking earlier that you um, felt being very confident in what you believe in can bring about a sense of arrogance. You know, when you're trying to explain how you feel or what you believe in. And I thought that was pretty good. That was a really good point because it's hard to express. You know, in today's culture. Um, or how to share your faith and who God is and that kind of thing. And I had read where you pray with your band members before you go on stage and that some of those band members may not be religious or whatever, but they tend to follow along and be spiritual about it. And I thought that must be a, um, a compliment to you on how you come across and how you bring your spirituality into other people and, and are able to share that. So I just want to make you know, note of that. And if you have anything else to mention about yeah. that. Listen, I really appreciate you mentioning that, and especially to say that, um, as an example, uh, the Dave Matthews concert that I was just a guest on, my friend, um, yeah, my friend Jeff Coffin is his sax player, and Jeff Coffin is like, again, to talk about, you can't afford to be mediocre uh, in a world where Jeff Coffin is playing the saxophone. <laughs> you know, there's so many great musicians who play those instruments, so... I have always been one, I don't want, like, if I'm in church and they're like, oh, honey, he can play that saxophone. Oh, my goodness. I even had Scott Morris that they introduced me. He said he's the very best saxophone player in the whole world. I'm like, Scott, knock it off, you know. But so in, in that sense, you know, I, I'm grateful to, to hobnob with the, that level of musicians. And to say that, Jeff, for instance, is Jewish, but not so much by faith, but, but as, uh, what do you say, um, culturally. culturally. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, 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 and just the sampling, uh, spiritually speaking, religiously speaking, that, that the folks in that band backstage, now we're about to go on, uh, are all over the map. From me kind of being evangelical <laughs> to atheists, you know, and Buddhists, and this one, that one, that one, dabbling in Hinduism, and whatever. So then, because I had this reputation, you know, with Whitney Houston, she literally called me Bishop. Like, my nickname was Bishop. <laughs> I'm telling you, I played with her about a little over seven years. For six and a half of those years, she never called me Kirk. <clears throat> she called me Bishop, because, like, we had this connection, like, she knew that I was going to be the one to pray with the band before we went on, or I did a Bible study for them, and I would type it up on my little laptop and pass it out and all that. But so now I get to backstage, you know, I normally don't play for, what do you think, there were like 7,000 people that night or something like that. I normally don't play for that many people. Um, but I'm there with these musicians, including Dave Matthews, and I, and I was privileged to pray with them. And now here's the thing. So where do I go with that opportunity? Am I trying to get them all saved in that prayer? Hmm. You know, hmm. no, not so much. No, what I'm doing is I'm embracing all of them and their specific faith traditions. Like I'm not going to get burned at the stake for not just, oh, in the name of Jesus, we, we call out the demons out here and we, you know, I, you know, no, it's about now you're on the world stage and you don't have to be apostate, you know, to just say, honoring all the faith traditions assembled in this circle backstage, God, thank you for allowing us to serve these people. Thank you for health and strength, for the breath that we will take before we play the first note. Thank you for the camaraderie, for the fellowship. Thank you for these opportunities that you've given us. Now, would you please take this and do something really cool for these people that maybe they didn't expect when David plays such and such a song. In the name of God. Amen. 
You see, so I got some, some, some evangelical brothers and sisters that would say, man, you missed a chance. <laughs> I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> you really have to find a space to honor other people's faith traditions and to just kind of come alongside them. Because, again, that arrogance, it just, it just doesn't work, you know. And you also entrusted them with a part of yourself that you could have just kept to yourself. That's kind of lovely to see it. I can, I can trust you with this part of myself, too. Well, do you have something to um, bring, us, bring um, us home with before we... Uh... I will play a song. So uh, the... Maybe I'll stand up. The jazz, blues, um, roots of all of pop music are share the root system with gospel, Christian music. Like, in the fields... Slave master made the mistake of letting these folks hear the gospel. <laughs> and they came up with their own version of, of, of these songs. And man, then slave master was like, uh, let me slide over here. <laughs> let me see what they're all doing. And that music became a blessing to the whole world. And it morphed and it just spread out into so many different things. But here's an example of a jazz standard. Thank you. Let's do it again tomorrow night. <laughs> Same bat station. The great theologian, mystic, and civil rights leader Howard Thurman once wrote, Above and beyond all else, it must be borne in mind that hatred tends to dry up the springs of creative thought in the life of the hater. Creative souls like Kirk Whalem remind us of the other side of Thurman's insight, which is that there is a way back from hatred to love. But it's rarely the way of better explanations. It may not even be by way of verbal language at all. We may be at a moment in our world in which some of our old modes of communication are broken beyond repair, leaving us to even older ones like songs hummed into our cradles. Music and art can reach into our buried and forgotten humanity, the Imago Dei in each of us, 
can awaken us to who God has made us to be. If only we'll learn to trust this truth. Sit with it. Amen. And refuse at least for a while to explain it entirely away. This episode of the Calvary Podcast is part of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a nearly century-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent and onto our podcast beyond. The Calvary Podcast Lenten Preaching Edition is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordination. And thanks to you for listening. Good night. Oh, man. Thank you. Yeah,